Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. I'm an activist, an analyst, a writer, and a sensemaker. I'm a Republican, a former SFGOP Central Committee Delegate, where I was the Deputy Vice Chair of Communications. As California GOP endorsed State Senate candidate, where I managed to win 11% of the vote in San Francisco, which, trust me, is better than average. I've also been involved with the firearms community and Second Amendment rights. I was on the cover of Time Magazine in November of 2018 for the Guns in America issue. But I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing off with the hard lefties like Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. The general topic of this podcast series will be politics in the current culture war as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge. But I also intend to include a practical element focused on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards true grassroots, nonviolent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go. I want to help you change that. You can also sign up for my Substack newsletter at contextualinsurgent.substack.com. I have a weekly newsletter that looks back at some of the highlighted stories of the week and gives you some feedback and analysis of what's happening. If you'd like to support my work, I have a Patreon at patreon.com backslash eesmith4. That's the number four. I also have a cash app at dollar sign eesmith4. Again, that's the number four. For the cost of a mocha frappuccino once a month, you can support my work, which is ultimately about helping you. Hey everyone, it's Aaron. Thanks for joining me. This is Daily Dispatch number 8. I'm going to go over some things today. Um, We've got, well first of all, let me talk about this project revamp I've done. I have been working through this over the last week, and this has been like the first full week of it. And I've really been enjoying it. If you follow my newsletter, I talked about my plan. And of course, if you've been following from the beginning, you've picked up that I've talked about this is going to be kind of an evolving project. And I've never written a regular newsletter or done regular podcasting. So I kind of wanted to figure out what works. I wanted to turn out regular content, but substantive content. Part of it was I needed to kind of adjust for what worked for me, but I also needed to kind of adjust and try to fit what works for my audience. And right now, you know, I think I mentioned this in the last one, I've been doing, I'm doing three podcasts a week. One of my Contextual Insurgent Project season podcasts, which is the one that goes over a substantive topic, like I pick one particular event from history, and or I'll pick two, like the last one this Monday, I talked about the Battle of Athens and the Battle of Blair Mountain. You know, I'll compare and contrast and try to figure out some good lessons that we can apply today. And the other two I do are basically like daily analysis of of current events and well they're not daily they're two a week right now i'm probably going to increase to a third in a few more weeks we'll see how it goes but yeah i want to give some more up-to-date content on an analysis of things that are happening things that are in the news and to kind of supplement my weekly roundup newsletter i've been doing which is an analysis of a lot of current events i wanted to give you something that is in two different types of formats, like a written and an auditory format. One thing I've learned is, you know, people have different preferred ways of consuming content. Like I personally am a reader. I like to read. I read very, very fast. And I actually have like an auditory processing disorder. <laughs> like I'm not disabled or anything, but it's like one of those things where it's just like listening, learn, like learning via listening is a little bit more difficult for me and it's a little harder to process. Um, it's much easier for me to learn it visually or by reading about it versus someone trying to explain it to me verbally. It's just a little bit higher of a processor load. I can't quite mentally picture what the person's telling me versus what I'm versus what I'm reading. So I mean, it's what it is, you know. I I know there's lots of other people too that they actually, you know, prefer hearing podcasts. And you know, another thing that went with this is splitting it up to like five short clips for me a, a week which is you know three podcasts and two written pieces like one of my second part of my newsletter goes out later today is I want to build that engagement I want to I want to give you something like five days a week for me that is you know a short quick quick easy to read yet topical and insightful analysis of something but I want to I want you to hear from me at least five days a week you know another thing too is It's about making yourself available to people and your audience in a way that works for them. And I'm trying to shoot for, my goal for this was I wanted to keep it between 30 to 45 minutes, like total 
time, whether if it's you're listening to a podcast or if you're reading something I wrote and clicking on all the links and reading the links I sent you. I want to I want to keep that between like about 30 to 45 minutes. You know, like I I'm not really into the three or four hour podcast. I mean, maybe I know there are some people who are and they do seem to be fairly popular. But my thing is, I'm like the people that I'm trying to talk to. There's a lot of busy working people that have things going on. I don't think you're just doing nothing all day. So I wanted you. It's like, where, where can people listen to my content? Where do they have availability? And it's like, well, they're commuting. Maybe they're riding the train or something, or they're driving their car. There's also like a lunch time or something. Then there's also maybe they're home cooking or working out. You know, those are all things where if you've got a 30 to 45 minute piece of content that the person can fit it into their day. And I think that's really important because I want something too. you know, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, I've seen a lot of stuff. I'm talking about some high level concepts here and I don't want to hit you with too much at one time. I want to give you a chunk of something like a nugget and you can digest that nugget and think about all the implications and how it fits in your daily life. Then the next day I'll give you another small nugget instead of like a week's worth of content in one day. That's just a wall of text. You know, it's like lefties are actually lefties for some reason are really big and lots of lots of reading and like I mean I love to read I know other people that are right-leaning that love to read but I know some people it's kind of weird I know extremely smart people that are kind of slow readers you know and they're right-leaning for whatever reason I don't know how it, how it sorts out it seems like you know maybe it's maybe it's driven by talk radio back in the day or maybe that's why talk radio took off in the 90s with like Rush Limbaugh was right-leaning people that was like the content they seemed to, seemed to like the most anyway the, the reason i'm spending so much effort and thought into how how i want you to digest my content and access my content really comes down to something i've noticed which is like we have an ecosystem on the right which is or you know it happens everywhere like the, for some reason the lefties don't have the quite of a distinct ecosystem the same way we do like we have our our thinkers and our intellectuals and our pundit class and it doesn't you don't have to even necessarily be a mainstream type pundit like obviously i think there's you know i i have an there's an aspect of what i do that is that because i've spent a lot of time researching and reading and thinking about a lot of the things that happen with politics and activism and organizing so there, there's I, I do kind of fall into that category but a lot of those people they don't actually think about how they get their word out, you know, to the people who are trying to do things. And like, again, I have done a lot of stuff. I've been very active, like with local politics and activism. So I've also been a doer and I've seen that it's like, there's a separation between our thinkers and our doers. Like we have our doers that are doing things and they don't really think of the bigger picture and they don't think of the best tactics. And they're not necessarily always researching that stuff. And some of our best thinkers are not actually, getting in the trenches and like there are people I do know people um, that are trying to write in a way that helps people that are doing things the issue is like a lot of the outlets and stuff you see them write in and the way they write about it and the way they present their content is a, is in such a way that they're talking to other thinkers so it's not something in it, <clears throat> you know if, if I write something like here's how you organize and I write it in some esoteric pundit magazine the people who are trying to organize on the right on the street are probably not reading that magazine. So again, this is why I'm doing this is like, I am formatting this, this, I want to make it. And if you're listening to this podcast and you read my, my newsletter, you're probably a fairly thoughtful person, but I do want it to make it accessible to everyone that's trying to get involved people that have other things on their plate in their day-to-day -day life. I'm just not interested in chirping my thoughts back at a fellow pundit class person. I want people that are doing things and are affected by this stuff personally and immediately to have access to these types of concepts and ideas. For me, it's about bridging the divide and bridging that divide ultimately comes down to learning to present and format my content in ways that more and more people can access it. It's an iterative process, but I really like this format and I'm probably going to stick with it for a while. I may do some tweaks, but for me, it's like every day I know I'm going to produce content based on my knowledge and experience that other people find useful. And that's a good feeling to have. Okay, let's jump into the stuff we're going to talk about today. 
first thing I want to talk about is the whole Gina Carano thing. Like it, it's a cancel culture thing. It's not necessarily an activism thing, but it is does involve at least some trans topics. And I want to kind of cover that and give some feedback from my perspective and stuff I've heard from other people in the trans community and, and what they think about it and everything. So Gina Carano is on the Mandalorian, um, which is the the great Star Wars show that pretty much everyone loves because you know lately the Star Wars stuff especially what is it about Star Wars movies where they like everyone they're kind of crap but everyone still somehow likes them I guess it was I mean I still love I still love the originals but it seemed like I don't know I mean and then episode 8 was just garbage but uh super disappointing but yeah I think it was Han Solo that film that was a standalone film that actually did not actually turn a profit. I think it was the first Star Wars film that never made a profit. I actually liked Rogue One. I thought Rogue One was a pretty good feeling of the original, and the Vader scene was pretty amazing. Um, the end where he clean, clears out a whole hallway. Anyway, I'm, I'm nerding out a little bit too much on that stuff. That's not really the point. Mandalorian's super popular episode. Jana, Gina Carano plays Cara Dune on this episode, on this series, and she's a very popular character, and she's Gina Carano's apparently conservative, and we all know how that goes these days, especially if you're open about it on social media. You know, of course, she's working on a Hollywood episode, so you know, Hollywood series and Hollywood's fairly woke right now. Well, Gina was being harassed. There's actually two big things I've seen people complain about. The first thing is her beep boop comment on pronouns. The second thing is she was the other day she was comparing like being conservative to being Jewish during during Germany, or actually she compared the behavior of the people targeting Jews in Nazi Germany to how the woke is acting. It was basically a, a meme talking about neighbors turning in their neighbors um, for being Jewish and how the people that enabled the, the Nazi machine were not necessarily the Nazis themselves, but your average everyday person. And that's a really valid comment, and it's, it's a I mean, the Jewish thing from conservatives, like you see the gun owners with the yellow star thing, that's a little cringe. You know, I think that that thing really gets thrown around a lot more than it should. But the observation itself, you know, about that basic human behavior that underlies that, that, you know, these things happen, it's it's a small group of people that may be the evil people that are driving the whatever is going, whatever horrific thing is happening. But it's the average people that are looking away that enable that. But also there's a, a swath of normal people that, you know, are not directly involved with whatever entity is driving the genocide or whatever horrific things happening that actually encourage that. And we've actually seen this with like the January 6th thing. It's like so many kids and friends are turning in their family members because they took a photo at the Capitol. I mean... You know, and of course they're getting like some kid, like there's been several kids who have like doxxed their parents over that. And I'm just like, I have a really hard time understanding that. I mean, I mean, maybe if, if your parent was like a mass murderer or something, you know, or some type of like serial killer, or some crazy shit, I, 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 maybe that would be a hard decision I could kind of understand. But, uh, you know, some of these, and even then, you know, it's like Ted Kaczynski's brother was turned in by his brother. You know, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, his brother turned him in because he recognized, like, his writing style. And, um, well, yeah, they, they released his manifesto in the New York Times. His brother read it. It was like, that sounds like Ted, what Ted writes. I've seen Ted write stuff like that. And even his brother later, you know, was extremely conflicted about it. He did not gloat, did not celebrate. His brother was like, it really just broke his heart to have to do it, but his brother was killing people, you know? Um, and he, he thought, I have to do this, this sucks, you know, and he did it. And I understand that, that that's a duty, but he still figured, that's my brother, I'm I'm torn up about it. Or some of these kids you've seen in the media, especially the kids, they're like gloating and celebrating, and one daughter was trashing her mom. She's like, Mom... You know, here you are, you you got punched by this person, and she, you know, her mother got attacked by some woman who was arrested by assault, and her, her daughter is mocking her on social media and trashing her, and then, like, trying to get her arrested for the capital thing and celebrating it. And there's another kid, 
you know, the other kid in Texas who like turned in his dad for being there. And it's not just so much doing it because I can see and how that would be a hard, should be a hard decision to make. And there are situations where most people would probably do something similar. But the gravity of the offense, which is, you know, people unlawfully entering, you know, nothing is, I don't think what happened at the Capitol approached any, most of what happened during last summer's BLM riots. But the way they were just doing it and celebrating about it on social media and putting up GoFundMes and grifting over it is really creepy and weird and a scary type of mindset. Um, the the way they're trying, you know, just trying to cancel people who are anywhere near the Capitol or anywhere near D.C. on that day. They were concerned, like Bank of America started turning over um travel records for anyone they thought who may have been there like everything they purchases without a warrant they send it to the fbi anyone who was they assumed algorithmically was in the area and may be conservative they sent it there you know anyone who was they sent it to the fbi but i think that's really kind of what gina's meme was getting to is you know the whole thing of what happened in germany was like average people were driving and average people were ratting out each other and this is something that happened in east germany as well you know when the communists were in charge they had you know the secret police but they said like i think up like one in six east germans was a confidential informant at some point where they were ratting other people out and that's really i think it's scary for a lot of reasons that's a really weird toxic authoritarian mindset but another thing too is like it, it certainly it gets to a point where people start turning each other in for things they didn't do because they're trying to get an advantage or they're trying to get back of that person for you know some perceived or actual slight in the past and again if you know you start eventually like we've seen the stuff with the gofundmes people are getting paid now making lots of money for turning in people suspected of bad think or being a dissident so i think it even though the the jewish type thing is kind of cringe and overblown the way this is memed so much the sentiment underlying it is very applicable um and she basically got and they're calling her anti-semitic for it i'm like well no that's like several of my jewish friends are like no that's not anti-semitic at all but uh I, I do think it is a little cringe like 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 i said like the like the gold stars the yellow stars a lot of gun owners are creating a stickers and patches that's kind of cringe and weird um but the, her sentiment in that post that went viral yesterday dealing with it was, I think, legitimate and true. And it, it does point to this underlying trend in America that should be very scary. Another thing she did, and this has caused some drama in the past, was she commented about um, you know some, some woke trans activists were harassing her on Twitter to change her, to put her pronouns in her Twitter bio. And that's like a big trend now with people to put their pronouns in their bio even if you're not any type of queer or non you know non non-standard looking presenting type person if you're any type of lgbt person it's like they want literally everyone to do it and they're trying to they started they started trying to badger her into doing it because she didn't have it she got fed up and put beep boop as her pronouns in her twitter bio and they got so pissed off about it i thought that was funny you know um there's a lot of people who are accusing her of transphobia for that i'm like i thought it was funny i thought it was hilarious like if i'd been in her shoes i would have done the exact same thing um i don't have my pronouns in my twitter bio my whole thing all along has been i have you know i have pronouns i prefer but like i'm not going to demand someone go against their conscience if you have some religious type of or some type of you know objection I, I i believe in freedom of conscience on that so i'm not going to demand people submit to me and that's really what it is it's about submission they want to find people that are not in line and they want to target them for pressure and force them into publicly submitting because the more people publicly submit the easier the pressure campaign is to build against other people so i thought that was funny some of their trans friends have thought it was funny too but of course they got super insanely mad about it um she's also like she's she's expressed some trepidation about like trans stuff in sports and 
I kind of have some same concerns, you know, as I, I think the topic is really, you know, no one really wants to talk about it honestly. Um, and especially the, the toxic trans activist people. And this is one of the things like I avoid the trans community in general. Um, I have lots of trans friends, but I pick, I'm very picky and choosy about it because there are some really loudmouth, toxic trans people that present themselves as the face of the community and they try to force people into compliance. Um, I have, I'm very mixed feelings about the sports thing. Like I know that, I mean, my, like there's not a lot of real data on that and the the hard data that exists is kind of conflicting. Um, there was a study from Sweden last year, I think it's still in peer review, that said that trans women on hormones after like a year still have like 12% more strength than trans men who are who are biologically female that take testosterone. So if a biologically male person taking estrogen is still stronger than a, than a biological female taking testosterone, then the trans woman is still going to be way stronger than the cis female who's taking no testosterone. That's a logical progression. Because um, we know trans men, you know, the biological women who take testosterone are way stronger than cis females who are not on anything. There's the uh, um, Mac Begg in Texas, I think, who's the female-to-male wrestler in high school. Um, in fairness to the kid, you know, he was trying to, he did want to wrestle against boys because he was like, I'm taking testosterone. It's it's fair for me to take, to wrestle against boys because I'm overmatching the females. Um, and he was like totally cleaning up in the women's division. And again, this is, this is a female to male. So this is a biological female, like, a, like biologically born female at birth person taking testosterone. Um, and I, I'm going to say he, because that's his preference and like that's my con what my conscience says um but yeah you know this is someone who a biological female who has a massive advantage in women's high school wrestling because you know and it is it's kind of a, a you know because of the testosterone but it was kind of a ironic blowback to the original change that in texas you know they said you have to wrestle you have to do sports within your biological sex and they were thinking in terms of um, like male to like male to female type people who are taking estrogen, but they didn't really think of the female to male, and that actually is a part of the other complication of the thing. Like personally, I think I'm just gonna come right out and say it. I think there is an advantage. Um, the the data, like I said, the data. Don't trust them when they tell you the science is settled because it's not. There's not a whole lot of hard data. The data that is generally about male to female people competing in sports is fairly mixed it's small it's a small sample size small studies and the and the results are mixed um, most of the the papers that you read on the topic are citing other papers that are citing other papers and citing other papers and and, and it's review of the or they'll have reviews of the literature and people will say this is a study well no it's not there's not a whole lot of really hard data and like I said, you know, it's the, the when you dig into most of the papers, like they'll cite other papers and they'll cite decisions made by like governing bodies like the Olympics Committee. But the problem is most of those decisions that are made by governing sports authorities happened not because of a massive stack of scientific studies, but because a pressure group or an activist group pressured them into changing their policies. And then those change in policies that were pushed by an activist group are cited as proof. And that, that's not proof. That's not how it works. So I, I have a very mixed feeling about this. Like, I personally think, I mean, young, young transitioners is a different topic, and I have some reservations about that as well. But I think, generally speaking, if someone transitions fairly young in their teens, there's probably not a whole lot of physical strength difference. I think once you start getting into adulthood, this is my personal observations, experiences, and talk with other trans people. Once you start transitioning like into adulthood, I think there is some advantage remaining. Like if I had to rate myself right now, I'm probably, I think from my experience and everything and observations, I, I fall somewhere 
in in between mid midway midway in between like male and female baseline for strength like i do some sports like some i don't really work out much and i'm getting back into it i've stopped for a while but i'm getting back into like doing cardio and running again i want to get in shape again but even without really training hard there are some sports things that i do where there are a couple girls who beat me out of them, but they're people who train very, very hard and are in very, very good shape. And I usually beat like most of the the female um, field. Like this is not like sports where you get rewards or anything. So I'm not like taking prizes away from the women. So just make that clear. Um, so yeah, just comparing, you know, comparing results and physical, you know, activities and everything. There isn't some sort of advantage when you're an adult. So I think she has, Gina Carano has a point there when she has concerns about that. And, you know, we, we focus so much on the male to female stuff because we, we think of it as being um, unfair to women. But we have to remember the female to male as well because those those people can also be, as Mac, Mac Beck proved, those can be unfair to women as well. Um, so I don't really have an answer on that. Like, you know, I don't think my honest feeling is I don't think there's an answer that's going to make everyone happy. And there's, I think it's probably impossible to be fair to everyone. I don't think we can compete. I don't think male, male to female people can compete against biologically men, biological men and be competitive. I don't think, I do think male to female people, especially if they translate transitioned anywhere near adulthood. I do think they're prob we probably do have, you know, especially if it's an adulthood person transition, they probably do have an advantage to biological females from birth, cis females. I also think that the female to male people who take testosterone probably have an I know they have an advantage to cis females, and they probably also have a disadvantage to biological males. So I don't really know what the answer is, you know, because the problem is there's not really a whole lot of us there in the to have a separate trans league so you know i i don't really know i don't have a solid answer you know like it's competing is going to screw someone over regardless of what category you're in there's not enough people for a separate category and not competing at all does kind of deprive people from the ability to go out and do stuff and you know physically compete so i don't really have an answer but i i think gina carano has a right to express those concerns because I have somewhat similar concerns um, and I think that's really what's important you know that and the beep boop comment seem to be the biggest that the beep boop comment and the Jewish thing where you know she talked about the complicity of normal people in evil things being a very important thing a very important part a critical part of that evil thing happening even though it was a very packaged kind of cringy, that was a very solid, you know, everything that she's being tacked for is stuff that I don't either don't have a problem with, or at least somewhat agree with. And, you know, the difference is you've got this, her being canceled from, I mean, she wasn't like fired per se. The season was over and they were talking about bringing her back for a spinoff in the future. And they canceled that. It wasn't like she was dropped from the series. Um, but yeah, like that, I, I think that's completely uncalled for, what they're targeting her for. And I've had people say, oh, well, you know, J.K. Rowling got targeted. Well, J.K. Rowling is like a billionaire. She's still a billionaire. She still has like a writing career. And she's kind of center left. That's the thing, too, is like talking about people on the left, they're not all the same. There's a center left contingent of people who agree with a lot of us on the danger and the toxicity of this woke woke culture. And, you know, Andrew Sullivan, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Barry Weiss, who was from the New York Times, uh, J.K. Rowling's another one. You know, they all signed, like, the Harper's Letter against cancel culture and this wokeness and this illiberal mindset that's trying to shut down all forms of dissent. They did, I mean, so th those folks are, are good to go. I mean, they are center left, but they're not the woke left. I mean, James Gunn had, like, baby rape jokes and a bunch of other crazy offensive stuff on his Twitter. And he was fired for a bit, but then they ended up giving him his job back. So it's, it's really, it's very clear. This is a lot of her concerns, Gina's concerns about the cancel culture stuff 
were based in reality. I mean, she she basically got let go from the series and from Disney for expressing those concerns that a lot of other people have expressed in a kind of a meme format about, you know, horrible things take complicity of average everyday people. I do want to segue into talking about my next topic here, which is some of the hate crimes that are being targeted against Asians lately, and also it's happening against some Jewish people as well, mostly on the, mostly Jews on the, on the East Coast, like the Hasidim and Orthodox people, and Asians on the West Coast. And this has been going on for a while, but it's really belatedly starting to surface in the media because a lot of the attacker, like who exactly the attackers are, is very problematic for the woke brigade. So yeah, a lot of this stuff, a few a few weeks ago, um, I think the gentleman was from Thailand. He had like an 84-year-old man died when he was knocked down. There's a video of a young man sprinting across the street, knocking, just pushing this guy over, not even stealing anything, then running away. And you're seeing that happen a lot to Asians and Jewish people now. It, the thing that makes it problematic for them to talk about and why there's so much angst over it is that it's mostly young black men doing it. And this is basically what we used to see with like the polar bear hunting, which still sort of happens, which was young black men just targeting white people for assault. This is starting to happen to Jewish and black and Jewish and Asian people as well. The Asian stuff's been going on for a while though. Um, it's it's been going on for against the Jewish as well, but it's really, really ramped up lately, or at least it's ramped up enough to surface more in the media. But this is like not a new thing. Like, I can tell you, you know, in San Francisco, this has been happening for a while. Um, we had, when we were endorsing candidates for DA in San Francisco with the SFGLP, when we're talking with the candidates, and some of, some of them were active DAs who were already prosecuting cases that were trying to get elected in San Francisco. You know, one of the interesting things we found out was, like, 80% of the car break, car robbery, the car burglaries you know, and the break-ins at houses, um, like the home invasion type stuff, 80% of those, of the suspects from those cases came from West Oakland. And it was mostly, most of that stuff is actually organized by West Oakland gangs. It's not just random people in San Francisco going out, smashing windows, stealing stuff. That does happen. That absolutely does happen. And that is something some of the homeless do do. But it's, but the predominantly, like there are, car burglary rings out of West Oakland that do that. There's home invasion rings. Um, and they'll cross over. They'll, and they'll also go target the Chinese in Chinatown. You know, the Chinese are fairly well off, and they'll target, especially the older people. Um, and that's something that's been going on for a while. It's not new. and But it is seems to be increasing. And these tensions are, again, they're not, they're, they're not new. One thing, you know, I'm from the Mississippi Delta. And it's actually a very diverse place. And Mississippi Delta has a reputation, you know, the Mississippi period has a reputation, or the South as well, of being very racist. And my my personal observation and experience has been that it's, I mean, there is some truth there, but some of the wildest, you know, in terms of like broad race relations, I think like today, like California is worse than Mississippi. That's having lived in both. Some of the craziest shit I've ever seen happen happened in California. Um, some of the most like toxic tribal conflicts happened. Like like you know when Armenia and Azerbaijan had a war last year. You know they were they're just north of Turkey. They had a war and like there was Armenian and Azerbaijani gangs in like L.A. that were having like street battles. So you know these tribal conflicts happen all over. But I, I've seen it, and I think what makes it worse, too, in California is, like, people try to ignore it and pretend it doesn't happen. So the whole situation just kind of flares up. This even spills over into the mayor's race. A couple years ago, after Mayor Ed Lee died, London Breed, who's a black lady, was appointed mayor. And she was running for election in 2018 for the role. Um, after, after she was appointed as acting mayor, she, they had the election in 2018. Her main opponent was Jane Kim, who's Asian. I think she's Korean, actually. Well, she, Jane Kim was having an event with other politicians, and 
they were talking about, you know, they had Asian politicians and um, I think an LGBT, like a gay politician. I mean, there was a bunch of Asian people there as well. And London Breed support, a mob of London Breed supporters, like stormed the event, forced their way in, started like yelling all these racist slurs, like Asian, anti-Asian slurs at Jane Kim and at everyone in the audience. And it was a big, big to-do about it. You know, you can just Google London Breed supporters, Jane Kim, Asian slurs, and you'll, you'll see info on it. This has been a pretty consistent theme for California. It's like they like to lie to themselves about a lot of things. And as the situation gets worse and they can't even, I mean, you can't even figure out what's going on and what's wrong in a situation until you acknowledge that there is sort of a problem. Like I was looking at the subreddit, the Bay Area subreddit, that was talking about the Asians being attacked. And there was literally an Asian person, like a woke-leaning Asian person, said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's like Asians aren't white supremacists because, you know, they don't hate black people because... They want to support white supremacy. Asians hate Asians hate black people because blacks are criminalize them constantly. And I just like, you know, <laughs> and there was a bunch of upvotes from other woke leaning people, and it was kind of it was kind of weird to watch where woke ideology takes people and how they twist themselves in knots trying to deal with some of this stuff. But it's it's led to stuff like now there is, and part of why I want to talk about this is now there's stuff like the. Asian self-defense forces that are forming in Oakland and in San Francisco because the cops aren't the cops aren't everywhere and even if they are they're basically broken in terms of their morale because of Chesa Bodin who's the DA who's letting everyone off letting all the criminals off and charging cops if they at anything that even remotely looks like excessive force but you know like even if the cops are there like it's there was a the other day a car like a seven thousand dollars worth of cameras were stolen out of the back of a Prius across the street from the Justice Center. You know, like the guy jumped out of a car and smashed the window, pulled the camera bag out, and there's like t- you can see in the background like two rows of cop cars because there's they double park at the Justice Center. And there's like a dozen cops standing out there. So even if the cops are like fifty yards away from you, they can't do anything. So, so you've got these Asian patrols in Oakland now and in San Francisco, and that really sort of, and again, it's it's a long way to get back to my point on this. That's really kind of the breakdown that we're seeing in America, and this is really like the community policing. Like when you when you deal with stuff like where you start defunding the police and the police get weaker and they can't function, then you're going to start having vigilante squads. Like the whole reason, you know, cops really exist is to protect criminals from vigilante squads. I really miss San Francisco. Even today, honestly, I I love the town. You know, um, I, I missed the town when I first moved there in 2011. I was living there part-time. I missed the fun, exciting town. And I miss it. You know, it was still wacky left then, but it was a wacky left that was didn't play for keeps. You know, like in the sense of, I didn't feel like I was being hunted by lunatics. And on that point, we're going to segue into, I want to touch on the Trump impeachment. This is going to be the final little thing I'm going to talk on today. I haven't actually watched any of the Trump impeachment. Because I figured, you know, it's, it's I actually never followed Trump on Twitter. And I, pretty much for the same reason I'm not watching the Trump impeachment or really keeping up with it actively. Is because anything that's really important that happens is going to be something that I hear. It's going to spill over into my timeline anyway. I mean, the reality is, like, you know, Trump says something shocking or outrageous. It's going to get retweeted onto my timeline or my feed and Twitter. Um, so I'm going to hear this stuff anyway. So that, that's why I haven't really followed it. It's like I have, heard, but I've still heard the main points. It's it's really sort of the thing that, from my experience in San Francisco and being around, seeing the wacky left up close and hearing the stuff that's happened all through his term and into this impeachment trial. It reminds me of of a book I read back when I was still in in flight school. Even though I don't have a commercial ticket, I just want to get a private pilot license. I went to something called a Part 141 school, which is a really intense school for aviation that's oriented towards getting people into the commercial field as soon as possible it's 
it's not something for casual pilots it's something that you go to when you're like I want to fly for a living well I didn't want to but I was surrounded by people who did they can actually have this kind of like strange aviation culty feel because everyone's like rah 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 aviation all these young people um, but one of the things you know one of the they, there's, they read lots of books and devour lots of content that deal with aviation related topics one of the books that I read then was something called it was a book called Wind, Sand, and Stars. It's the memoirs from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who was an early aviator. He was back when people were like in the canvas airplanes in the 1920s and all the crazy, really dangerous stuff. Well, part of his memoir deals with his time in North Africa, and he talks about someone, the enemy of the Moors that the tribes were fighting against a French cavalry officer named Captain Bonifuse or Boniface. I don't know. I can't pronounce it right. We'll call it Boniface. St. Exupery notices that these tribesmen who are battling the captain almost have this romantic relationship with him. They hate him, but he said that he feels like there's an undertinge of like respect and love that they have for him. You know, th this man is a worthy adversary, and but more importantly, he, he gives their life meaning. He talks about there's a, a part where you know, his tour is up and the Captain Boniface goes back to France and these tribesmen are suddenly bewildered and depressed because they're like this they assume this person was in the battle to live or die to the end and then he just gives up and goes away and it's a massive blow to their self esteem and they convince himself he's going to come back, you know, he's going to go back to France and realize that this battle that we have is the place to fight and is a life worth having and there's some of that you know I sense some of that with some of the crazy lefties that I've seen like I remember in San Francisco you would it was weird because people would inject Trump into anything where we're talking about you'd be hanging out at a bar and someone would segue to Trump and then it would turn into like a two-minute hate of Trump and I think in a sense Trump was kind of their Captain Bonifaz and you see this like with the impeachment trial maybe it's like Trump is out of office but they're obsessed about him because you know he was the cause that gave their life meaning they're you know exuperi talks about the tribes who are normally fighting and combat with each other all the time and having these little tribal squabbles suddenly united whenever captain bonifaz they even heard a rumor he was in the in the region and there i see this with the lefties it's like there's some of these people who you know they want to unite. They want to have someone to fight against. They need an enemy. It's like new new belief systems don't need a god, but they do need a devil. And Trump kind of filled all these roles for them, you know. And you still see this. Like they're still obsessed about Trump today. They need that. You know, Trump was not a Nazi. Trump was not a fascist. Trump was basically a '90s Democrat who happened to say a lot of very '90s Democrat things about immigration, trade, and war. That you know. There's stuff Bernie Sanders and Bill Clinton said not that long ago that echoed most of the things Trump said. So they made him into this thing he wasn't because they needed that enemy. They needed, you know, these people want to fight an opponent that's worthy. They want to fight evil. And when they, when you don't have evil out there that's obvious and clear, um, you're going to create it. It's kind of like the Tocqueville effect. You know, people... Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville talked about people when their lives get better they start to get more and more angry about small things and that's something else that happens here I also mentioned this in my reason piece that I talked I cited Fukuyama who actually warned of Fukuyama Francis Fukuyama was the philosopher who talked about the end of history and he gets bagged on a lot because he's they just assumed he was going to be happy-go-lucky new world order forever and ever but Fukuyama did warn that he's like there is a high likelihood that people are going to try to restart history because there's people out there who don't want to have this peaceful lotus eater existence where there's no trouble, no struggle. People want to fight. People want to struggle. They want to have a conflict. They want to have a worthy opponent. They want to have a worthy cause. And that's really, you know, that's what I see with these people in Trump. And, you know, I actually got a lot of criticism over my reason piece as well, the, the profile and reason when I was being interviewed. Because I talked about this, I, I said, you know, I kind of, I was, I was accused of also being sympathetic towards Antifa and anarchists and Black Bloc because of the way I spoke about them. 
And some of the things, honestly, you know, it's like I I have some crime think stuff, which is one of the out, anarchist outlets. I read some of their stuff when I was like 20. I thought it was kind of romantic and exciting. And I, I, the under, like it was, I don't think it's a, it's a good plan for the world, but there's a romantic vision. Like there's, there is something that calls to some people and, you know, adventure and feeling like your life is more than just being a cog in a machine there's some of that stuff and that calls to some people and especially today when so many people are disaffected so i kind of understand where that comes from like i am not obviously i'm not antifa i'm not an anarchist like if you followed me at all you know that by now like i'm infamous for street fighting these people but i kind of understand where some of that comes from because i think if my life had been different and i think this is part of understanding what evil is and understanding horrible things is is acknowledging the parts of you that could have done those things had your life been different. You know, the worst things that have ever happened in history, the most evil acts, there's some elements of that in me and some of the best things that have ever happened. Most of us are like that. If you search your heart deep enough, you'll find those threads within you. You know, had my life been different, had I had been born somewhere else um, at a different time, maybe, I could have been one of those people. You know, I, I, I can see that, the elements of that in me. And that's what we have to be aware of you know i think that's part of wisdom it's not to necessarily approve of everything bad people do but i think it's important to understand that those elements are are universal but yeah saw a lot of stuff in san francisco very weird conflicted emotions about trump the obvious hatred but there was something else there too and he did give their lives meaning did give them something to fight for. I mean, these are people that love the Marvel movies and hero movies and want to see themselves as Rey from Star Wars. I mean, if you're going to be Rey from Star Wars, you need an emperor, you need Kylo Ren, you need a bad guy. You know, there, there is no heroism without a villain. I want to read this piece from Wind, Sand, and Stars. It's a great book, and you should read it in its own right. It's a great talk. It's great insights into that early 20th century world and aviation and Antoine de Saint-Exupéry is a wonderful writer. I want to read this little excerpt from Wind, Sand, and Stars. I don't think it's a total explanation and a perfect match for the lefty obsession with Trump, but I think there's at least some strain of this. In the silence of the sand waves, Bonifaus leads his troop like a corsair of old. By the grace of Bonifaus, the oasis of Cape Juby has ceased to be a haunt of idle shepherds has become something as signal, as portentous, as admirable as a ship on the high seas. Bonifaust is a storm beating against the ship's side, and because of him the tent clothes are closed at night. How poignant is the southern silence. It is Bonifaust's silence. Moyan, the old hunter, listens to his footfall in the wind. When Bonifaust returns to France, his enemies, far from rejoicing, will bewail his absence as if his departure has deprived the desert of one of its magnetic poles and their existence of a large part of its prestige. They will say to me, Why does Bonifaust leave us? I do not know. For years he has accepted their rules as his rules. He has staked his life against theirs. He has slept with his head pillowed on their rocks. Like them, he has known biblical nights of stars and wind in the course of the ceaseless pursuit. And of a sudden he proves to them, by the fact of leaving the desert, that he has not been gambling for a stake he deemed essential. Unconcernedly he throws in his hand and rises from the table. And these moors he leaves at their gambling lose confidence in the significance of a game which does not involve this man to the last drop of his blood. Still they try to believe him. Your Bonifaus will come back. I do not know. He will come back, they tell themselves. The game of Europe will never satisfy him garrison bridge, promotion, women's, and the rest. Haunted by his lost honor, he will come back to this land, where each step makes the heart beat faster like a step towards love or towards death. He has imagined that the Sahara was a mere adventure, and that was essential in life lay in Europe, but he will discover with disgust that it was here in the desert. He possessed his veritable treasures, this prestige of the sand, the night, the silence, this homeland of wind and stars. And if Bonifaus should come back one day, the news will spread in a single night throughout the country of the refractory tribes. The Moors will know that somewhere in the Sahara, at the head of two hundred marauders, 
Boniface is again on the march. They will lead their dromedaries in silence to the wells. They will purvey the provisions of the barley. They will clean and oil their breech loaders, imperiled by a hatred that partakes of love. Exupery is a talented writer, and I, the whole book's worth reading. But, you know, it's probably worth reflecting on at this point you know, how much of that, the sentiments expressed in an excerpt are things that really apply to all of us. I, I personally don't feel comfortable translating entirely all of the things expressed in the excerpt onto some of the woke cultist leftists that we have unfortunately inflict upon us today. I think the Moors in that in that clip right there are far more noble inherently than a lot of these whack jobs we see today. I mean these they were an honor culture. These people had very strict rules of conduct. It's it really it isn't a complete translation, but I think that's something there is an element there of that. People need an enemy. They need a worthy enemy because, you know, the value of your enemy and the value of your opponents and how good they are and what they do and how strong of an enemy they are reflects on all of us. You know, our enemies sometimes tell us more about ourselves than our friends. With that said, I'm going to wrap up this podcast and leave you to cogitate on that some and reflect on some of my, the things we discussed today. I'll have another one of my newsletters out tonight. My second newsletter should be coming out tonight. I'll have another podcast tomorrow, another Daily Dispatch. I'll be talking about a few different things tomorrow. I'm hoping next week, if it's not next week, it'll probably be the next week, we're going to talk about for the season Contextual Insurgent Project episodes, the ones that are the analytical episodes. I'm going to be talking about the Colorado recall back in 2014, I think it was, 2013. They passed some gun laws in Colorado, like the universal background checks and the banning magazines over 15 rounds. Well, they actually recalled, they successfully recalled several of the senators that were behind those measures, those those laws. And we're going to, I'm looking next week or two, we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk, we're going to have an interview with some of the people who are involved with that and try to get some lessons from them on what they did, how they did it, what they learned. But yeah, thanks for joining in, and I'll talk to you later. This is Aaron from the Contextual Insurgent Project.